Today on Ag News Daily. When you take that inefficiency, that dead weight of a tariff, the end users can't afford to pay more prices and the transportation will just cost more instead of shipping it in these efficient logistics. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Glenn Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by my co-host, Hannah Pagel. Hannah, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, Delaney. And yourself? I can't complain. I'm having a pool day today. Ooh, nice. Yeah. We're also joined by our co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, what are you up to today? I am getting really excited. So about five years ago, they closed a bridge at the end of my road, the road that connects me to town. And today or tomorrow, they're supposed to reopen it. So I Mm. am very excited. I will go from being five miles from town to one mile to the closest Casey's Pizza, which is going to be fantastic. <laughs> Casey's Pizza. Well, you've definitely got your priorities in line, don't you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we, of course, announced our uh, Global Ag Network launch last week and have had some conversations with some other podcasters. So we just want to reiterate, if anybody has an idea for a podcast or has a podcast that they think should be part of our network, we uh, definitely would love if you reached out to us on Facebook, Twitter, the website, Etc. But with that being said, what's going on in the world of agriculture today, guys? Well, I'll kick it off for news. Um, the first story that I have today is a House Natural Resources Subcommittee hearing was held today to discuss the potential option of eliminating regulatory burdens and legal loopholes impacting livestock grazing on federal land. So, The Idaho Lieutenant Governor Brad Little, University of Montana Professor Dr. Dave Noggle, I believe that's it, and uh, Arizona Farm Bureau President Stephanie Smallhouse, they provided some testimonies to the subcommittee today to just talk about how much farmers and ranchers really utilize federal lands for grazing and how they make it more sustainable. So they're trying to you know, keep this going a little bit, but to date, there's been about 2,154 producers that have partnered up to conserve about 7.5 million acres of grazing lands. So that's an acreage equivalent to three Yellowstone National Parks, which is huge. But Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting for those of us that live let's say, east of the Missouri River, we don't have to think much about federal lands. But you go out west and the grazing mm-hmm. on federal lands, the rules about what you can do on these federal lands. The water I mean, rights insane. for those lands. Yeah. Yeah. And so I reached out to uh, Dr. Noggle earlier today to try to get him on the podcast for later this week to, to talk about what he's been researching and how grazing can have a positive impact on those lands because cows really they're one of nature's best composters turn that grass into a value-added nutrient and poop it right out the back end <laughs> nice mike thanks for that yeah well that's i don't know delaney if you understand how uh, how cattle work but that's what they do yes thank you i was at home this weekend and i got my fair share of cattle in <laughs> <laughs> you're so funny aren't you oh yes <laughs> well i'm glad you get to uh, hose them down this weekend because it was toasty uh, well, I, uh, am showing in the governor's steer show at the Iowa State Fair, so I had to go work with my steer this weekend. Oh, perfect. How's he look? Uh, they said he hasn't been eaten so well, so he isn't full, filled out as much as he should be, but he looks pretty. He's got nice fluffy hair. What breed is he? 
I think he's a crossbreed. Okay. Okay. Is he black? I mean, definitely an Angus influence. No, you no. Know, you know, he almost looked shorthorn to me, a Ronin, because he had a little bit of white sprinkled into his oh, coloring. Oh, yeah. nice. Mm-hmm. Kind of a what, like a chocolate sprinkle? Uh, well, no, he's black, but with white sprinkling in there. Right. Okay. Back, vice versa, like chocolate. a chocolate donut with vanilla sprinkles. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, um, you know, one of the key parts of the Governor's Charity Steer Show, for those of you outside the state of Iowa, uh, Iowa Cattlemen put this on every year at the Iowa State Fair. The steers mm-hmm. are sold, and all that money goes to the Ronald McDonald House. Mm-hmm. And in order for people to buy those steers, they have to have money, right? I mean, that's key. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. we've got good news here. As U.S. retail sales have risen very strongly in the month of June, we saw greater purchases across the country of automobiles and all sorts of other goods. And this comes together as a sign of a strengthening economy, also with that unemployment rate that's continuing to drop and more folks are reentering the uh, what job hunting marketplace. Um, we're probably going to continue to see interest rates rise throughout the year. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said today that uh, – The first half of this year, overall economic activity appears to have expanded at a solid pace. We've seen two interest rates so far, and we're probably going to see two more, probably quarter percent hikes in the interest rate before the end of the year. I don't exactly get why they raise inflation rates. Is it because or right why they raise interest rates? Excuse me. So the idea is that as interest rates go up, People park their money. So when mm. interest is almost zero, when, you know, a six month CD at your bank is, you know, point zero zero two percent, nobody wants to put their money in there, right? They want to mm-hmm. spend it. They want to buy stuff. They want to invest in riskier things, which helps drive inflation. So they raise the interest rate, encourage consumers to put money in savings accounts and, you know, longer term investment vehicles, which pulls those dollars out of circulation, which means those dollars aren't competing for cars and stoves and whatnot. And that helps dial back inflation. Hmm. I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I'm not going to share them right now. Okay. Okay. Another time. I'm going to rant. I love your rants. If you can get on the soapbox, let's do it. Well, just a quick one. I'm a libertarian by registration. I, I know you are too, Mike, but I believe in like as little government intervention as possible. And that to me is like there. It's like the seatbelt thing. Like you should not be allowed to tell me to wear a seatbelt in my car if I'm not affecting anyone else. And I feel like the interest rate thing is kind of the same thing. Like they're basically trying to herd people into saving their money. And that to me doesn't like I understand why they're doing it, but it just doesn't feel right. Well, yeah, and so and that what I said was actually a very simplified version. So the Fed is technically a bank, right? Mm-hmm. And because of that, the Fed is the bank's bank. And so what the Fed is doing is they're raising interest rates that they charge banks to borrow funds for the very short term. And then that just trickles down through okay. the banking system in theory to raise rates at your local, you know, bank for a CD and so forth. So yeah, get what you're saying, but probably we get talking inflation and stuff and probably ought to have a professional on. Yeah, probably. Not us. We're not the professionals. Not us, but let's see what else do you have? 
Yeah, so we have some a little bit of news development here with the uh, Wildfires and Hurricane Indemnity Program, or 2017 WIP, which was authorized by Congress earlier this year. They are, I guess you could say, awarding, maybe that's not the best word to use, but they're, uh, they're allocating, how about that, $2 billion worth of money for producers that were affected by wildfires and hurricanes in 2017. They have finally made that assistance money available and um, sign up for that begins July 16th so today and it will go through November 16th and basically what they're going to do is take it on a case-by-case basis and Secretary Purdue said that they're making money immediately available in payments of up to 50 percent of your calculated assistance or damage that happened during that time so you're probably not going to get all of your uh, all of your cost back right away but but the way it sounds to me is they're going to basically go through, make sure everybody gets at least 50% of their damages, and then if they have money left over, they'll reallocate that money to uh, the producers affected. And who all can sign up for that? Or what do you need to verify? Does it say? That's a good question. Um, it, 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 I think on the on the sign-up, it'll tell you those specific um, regulations, but they're basically, basically producers are capped at $125,000 payment, so if that's um, 75% of your income from 2013 to 2015, then that limit jumps to 900000 So I'm not sure what specifics are as far as during that time what happened mm-hmm. to you. I think it just says case-by-case basis, so I don't know that there are any standards. Okay. In place. So visit, yeah. visit your local FSA office yeah. is probably the best, yep. the best course of action. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, Hannah, what do you have for us? So another one for you, just a little update on um, President Trump's visit to the United Kingdom. So he discussed with the British Prime Minister Theresa May a strategy to enter into a free trade agreement. And from their meeting, it sounds promising as long as things go smoothly for the United Kingdom to exit from the European Union. But okay, this might sound like a dumb question, but I just I have to figure this out. So in this article, it keeps saying Brexit strategy. Is Does that just mean Britain's exit strategy, or what does Brexit mean? Yes, Britain's exit from the European Union. Yep. Okay, so they just smushed those two words together, which makes sense. Yes. Yeah, okay. you know how the media, how we are in the media, Hannah. We like to squish things together, whether it's Pizzagate, Watergate, blah, 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 <laughs> something gate, if it's politics. And here we've got Brexit. There was talk of Grexit, the Greek exit from the EU, um, all these other things. So it's, yeah, it's just a the stupid thing, that, thing was, that journalists do. The thing that was confusing to me about that, because I was also looking through that today, Hannah, was um, I thought – the United King, or I thought that the UK was already out of the European Union. I thought the same thing, but apparently they're still waiting on some, I'm guessing, legal paperwork yeah. being shuffled around. But, and then there was also some like speculation that Donald Trump made some comments that if they did, mm-hmm. you know, leave, that it's actually going to hurt the US in the long run. But then I don't know if that was just the media twisting it or. Mm-hmm if he actually was agreeing with this. So, I don't know. What did you yeah. think on that? I, I was reading another news article that said he did an interview with the Sun newspaper, which I think is a UK newspaper, um, and he said that if the if the if Brexit or the UK leaving the EU didn't go well, then it threatened uh, his ability 
or the U.S.'s ability to enter into a free trade agreement with the U.K. Because I guess if all the pieces didn't get tied up from that exit, then he would still be dealing with the European Union. He is um, pretty much all about bilateral trade agreements as opposed to like multilateral, which would be what it would be with the EU. Which makes sense. Okay. That was my two cents from it. Mike, did you uh, see or hear or read anything else? You know, I followed it on Twitter, the whole visit. Now, President Trump is in Helsinki. He met with President Putin from Russia this morning. And there's just so much hyperventilating from people whenever President Trump speaks that it's really hard to figure out what's a fact and what's, you know, somebody's fevered imagination just because they they hate him and or they love him. And uh, I just kind of tune it out for a week and then we can kind of get the the more level headed um, assessments of what all happened. Mm, yep, that's fair. I've got just one other piece of news here, and this is coming from China. So I talked about the U.S.'s uh, growth spurt that happened in the second quarter, ended in June. And we've got China, whose economic growth is starting to slow in the second quarter. Um, we actually saw the Chinese economy expand by 6.7%. That was their GDP growth. Before that, it was 6.8%. And uh, growth was generally stable, according to a spokesman for the National Bureau of Statistics in China. He said growth was generally stable, but the uncertainties of the external environment are mounting. And that, of course, is a reference to President Trump and the administration's tariff battles that are ongoing with China. So they said this downturn is likely to deepen. Beijing will tighten their financial controls and trade tensions are likely to worsen. So there's the there's the uh, the story there. Growth in China slows down that could hurt demand for uh, for beef, for pork and for soybeans potentially mm, if it slows down a lot. Yeah, well actually while we're talking about trade, I had just one other quick piece of trade news and then I'm out for today. The U.S. Trade Representative's Office said that they have launched an official, um, an official investigation. That's what I'm looking for against China, the EU, Canada, Mexico, and Turkey. And they did that. They filed those with the World Trade Organization today or on Monday um, in response to just all the trade stuff that's been going on, retaliatory measures after President Trump's announcement about the the tariff and aluminum steel imports. So we will see what happens. I think basically they go through a period of review and then potentially a lawsuit later down the road. But I think that's kind of a long process. All right. Well, it starts somewhere, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it starts by yeah. filing those uh, grievances. Hannah Pagel, do you have any other news before we jump into the markets? You guys hit my last news pieces. So, Mike, why don't you go ahead and get us into the markets? Let's do it, folks. And we've actually got green on the screen today. And remember, if you want to do something about this, put a risk management plan in place, be sure to call our friends at the Zaner Group. You can give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R dot com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. In the corn market, September contract was up half a cent at 341 and three quarters. December also up a half at 355 and a quarter. In the soybean pit, the August contract up 10 and three quarter cents, closed at 829 and a half. November up 11 and a half cents, finished the day at 845 and three quarters. 
We could not find strength. The September contract was down eight and a half cents at four eighty eight and a half. December down eight and a half as well to close at five oh four even. Looking over on the livestock side in the cattle complex, big moves to the upside. August live cattle up two dollars thirty seven and a half cents at one oh six ninety two fifty. The October up a dollar twenty seven fifty to close at one oh eight sixty five. In feeder cattle, the August contract up a dollar sixty-five at one fifty-two thirty-seven fifty. September up a dollar thirty-seven fifty to close at one fifty-two forty-five. And lean hogs couldn't ride that wave of green in the cattle complex. The July lean hog contract down twenty cents at seventy-nine seventy-five. August down ninety-five cents to close at sixty-nine twenty. And of course, we've got to take a look at the dairy market. The July contract down a penny on the day at fourteen twenty-six, with August up thirty-two. Two cents today closed at fifteen sixteen. Before we have our hashtag Market Monday conversation with Elaine Cub, let's hear a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. This week we're talking to our friend Phil Long, the agronomy specialist up at Latham High Tech Seeds, and Phil. We're midway through the summer. Japanese beetles are making their presence felt. Bring us up to speed. What should growers be looking for to determine if the Japanese beetles are, are really a threat this time of year? Sure, Mike. That uh, The skeletonized leaves and the feeding on on soybean leaves tends to scare a lot of guys. And uh, You know, what they need to be looking for is uh, the percentage of defoliation. We're at that time when soybeans should be flowering. Um, they should be at that R1 growth stage. So R1 to R5, while they're in that seed fill and that early flowering time period, the damage is, is only 15%. That's the threshold you're looking for. Um, but, but remember, a lot of times people tend to overestimate that. Make sure you look at the new growth on the top of the plant you know, and see if they're really diving into that or if it's just on the old growth. That's really important. After you get past that, once you get to about the R6 or the green bean stage or that amame stage, 25% is kind of what you're looking for there to, to, to make the choice on, a, on an insecticide spray. So just make sure they look at the leaves hard and, and, and really do some comparisons on percentages before you get too excited. Folks, Latham High Tech Seeds has incredible agronomic insights. They've got incredible seed products for your field. If you want to get involved with a great company, call 1-877-GO-LATHAM or visit the website at LathamSeeds.com. It's time once again for Hashtag Market Monday on the Ag News Daily Podcast, the first Monday in quite a while that we've got some green on the screen, and we are joined by the author of Mastering the Grain Markets, Elaine Cub. Elaine, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Fantastic. No complaints, yeah. Yes. Now, Elaine. We've got green, corn and soybeans, first Monday, I believe, in eight or nine weeks that we've got an update in those two markets here on a Monday. What happened? What what did did the weekend change anything? Did we get a flash drought? Was there did we lose some acreage? What's going on? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I, I mean it's fantastic, I think, just from a psychological standpoint, just to have something different happening. Um, I will point out that overnight, you know, so the Sunday evening trade, soybeans did establish fresh contract lows. And actually, you know, right away at the beginning of the morning, it looked like we were just stuck in the same bearish trend. And we are still stuck in the same bearish trend. But as traders got to their desks this morning, there started to be like really quite a lot of trading volume as the morning, you know, approached 745 and got started again at 830. 
So it seems to me that, folks, there was actually activity going in there. And I don't know, it might have been related to the timing of the NOPA crush report, which I know isn't a huge deal and is backward looking just like everything else. But it was perhaps as good as opportunity as any for the soybean market to come in and say, gosh, we have lost a lot of value over the past seven, eight weeks. There has to be a point in time here when bargain hunting makes sense. So I feel like this was just the day when we finally had some interest locking in these prices and perhaps some speculators positioning themselves ahead of that NOPA crash report, which was good. Now, Elaine, we also had the uh, WASI report come out last Thursday. We haven't had anybody on to talk about that report since it was released. Were there any big surprises to you? I know Mike and I talked through it a little bit on the podcast, but it seems like it was a fairly bullish report all around. Well, you know, they did uh, reduce the soybean <laughs> soybean export projections by 250 yeah. million bushels. But if you interpret that as it could have been worse, then sure, sure, that could be <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and the thing I'll say about about those export projection changing, so they take off 250 million bushels, and maybe that's the right number, maybe that number will change as time goes on, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, and this is another thing, like I saw the FAO put out a, a report today suggesting that food prices, imported food prices to the end-using countries could spike this year because the general global supply and demand is still quite tight or it will be tighter in 2018-19 than it was in 2017-18. And that may be because the case. Because smaller ending stocks or what? Yes, because smaller ending stocks and the demand is there and the demand will continue to be there. And just because the 250 million bushels got pulled out of exports, we did see, like I mentioned, good domestic crush and, and they could go someplace other than China. But all of that being said, prices still are justified moving lower because when you take that inefficiency, that dead weight of a tariff, the end users can't afford to pay more prices and the transportation will just cost more instead of shipping it in these efficient logistics that we have, the market has established over the past 15, 20 years to get to China. Now it's going to have to go through some convoluted pattern to some new customer. All of that will be much more expensive. The transportation costs, the negotiating costs, it will be more expensive for end users and less money to the producers. Like there's just nothing good to say about it. And my point is that no matter what the supply and demand report necessarily said, and you could put a bullish spin on it, it still doesn't mean, it still means that we have to have these lower prices. The price, uh, the, the discount for us soybeans compared to Brazilian soybeans is a dollar 90, which is like 23% of the us soybean value. So that's just about your 25% tariff discount. Yeah. Now, Elaine, everything you've talked about there, right there when we're talking tariffs, these are macro policy changes that have been talked about for the, well, since the election that, of course, just went into effect here, what, the 6th. Mm-hmm. I pulled up the Commitment of Traders report, and I know this is a tool that you like to watch. We had huge speculative long position in the soybean market up until three weeks ago, and then it, it sold itself off, and now we're, we're kind of flat. Maybe we're seeing those specs come back into the market. What do you see from a perspective of market structure in the bean market in particular? 
Yes. So in soybeans in particular, the speculators, the managed money category, futures and options combined, I'm looking at, they're definitely net short, which makes sense after we've had weeks and weeks of this trend. You get sort of trend following, maybe even algorithmic trading going in there and just piling on those short positions. But in this most recent report, which, as you mentioned, is dated July 10th, they were starting, they were continuing to build more of those short positions, that trend followings. But there was also some long positions being bought in. They are starting to buy. That's what I was talking about, those bargain hunting buyers. And that net short position leaves the market vulnerable to short covering and big jumps like we see today, this 15 cent jump. And I will note that, you know, we haven't seen it got, we have not seen the soybean market move any higher after the NOPA crush report. So this could be one of those buy the rumors, sell the facts sort of moments. But I feel like that might be the timing why we get in there and you want to get rid of short positions before you get a bullish report. There was record large June soybean crush this year. Fantastic. Good stuff. Three, like three or 4% more than we saw last year at this time. So anyway, there's still net short. There's still potential for more of that short covering, more of these sort of choppy upward movements. And we are seeing evidence that there are traders who are willing to step in at these prices and start to buy. I'm not, like I mentioned, wildly bullish because I feel like this discount that the market has put in here for soybeans is absolutely justified, given the pricing and trading scenario that the world is in right now. But it, it is hopeful that we are starting to see people willing to step in here and, and hopefully put a bottom in. Now, Elaine, I want to jump into the corn market a little bit. So I was talking with my dad and a couple of neighboring farmers up in northeast Iowa. And for the most part, the most areas in the corn industry have seen the perfect recipe for a good crop. But also there is quite a bit of last year's grain that's still sitting on the market today. So I have two questions for you. The first one is for farmers who still have last year's grain to sell, should they sell now or should they like kind of like close their eyes and wait it out for the market to improve? And then like, oh, go ahead, answer that question first. Well, I was just looking at the, the cash corn prices uh, over the past, you know, since the beginning of May, they've fallen about 20%. That's the National Corn Index. So, it's not promising. And I don't know exactly in Northeast Iowa if they're technically below $3, but I did, there's even, there are even bidders in Illinois on Friday that were below $3, below the $3 mark. On Friday, the average cash price um, being bid for spot grains, that old crop corn was $3.10. So it's just not a very compelling price right now. If, you know, if, if farmers were going to move grain because they have to clean out bins and they just seasonally, this is the way they like to do it, I would almost be tempted to go back in and, and reown them with some options just because it is so painful to sell corn at about $3 cash. Um, I, just not to say I'm terribly bullish for corn, but I, I just feel like this is this is not a great price to accept. And there are some summers when you can sort of look forward and hope to get a lot of basis push in late July or in August because there's a shortage of grain and the processors really start to need that grain. But we are not really seeing that. Um, 
processor level basis bids like in council bluffs are like 15 under which is really quite nice for this time of year but i don't feel like there's any shortage of old crop corn and i don't feel like we should be looking forward to those wild summers where you start to get overs in july and august yeah just to kind of verify your point there elaine i pull up our local elevator here in grinnell and cash bid for current delivery is 296. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at the DTN map this morning, the the basis map, there's like, you know, yeah, corn prices with a two on them all over the northwestern corn belt and then scattered throughout Iowa and Illinois. I saw that too, which I thought was very disheartening. Perfect. Well, that kind of answered what was your second question. That kind of answered all my questions actually. Yeah, so if you want to take Elaine, it over. I, yeah, you know, I was having a discussion yesterday with a cattle buyer from uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and we were just talking about this quote-unquote wall of cattle that's coming. And she said, you know, she's been get, getting out in feed yards and talking with producers, and it just doesn't seem like that is the case. And all these folks are preparing. A lot of people are, are getting placements put in to feed yards, but it doesn't feel like there's this wall of cattle coming. Have we priced in something that's not there Possibly. That was a big concern all through the first half of 2018 because we saw that big calf crop. And I think the industry, I was worried about that wall of cattle. But we saw, you know, really good numbers taken out of the feedlots and marketed through the spring. So I don't know. I'm willing to guess that maybe it just handled it, got handled in a much more orderly way than anyone was expecting. Why do you think then we've seen such, I guess, dramatic price differences across the country cash-wise with uh, with all that being said. Are you looking at, like, auction prices? Or give me some yeah. prices here, Delaney. Yeah, auction prices. Sure. So um, we had cash prices in her part of the area. I think she said they were going for, like, one in the mid-120s, 130s. Um, I don't know. It, it seems feeder like feeder cattle? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Feeder cattle. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. It just seems like there's a big discrepancy kind of across the country. And I didn't look at, at, at uh, cash prices this morning across the country, and I should have because I knew I wanted to ask you about this. But I don't, I don't know. Have, have you been hearing anything from producers, Elaine? Well, no, I guess I, I haven't been seeing uh, what you mentioned, this variable basis in the feeder cattle. That's That would definitely be something you guys should uh, look into, journalists. There's a challenge <laughs> for you, journalists. I mean, I know, like, just generally speaking, that basis between just the cash index, the CME cash index for feeders versus the futures price has been very volatile and very challenging for hedgers because you can't really rely on it uh, remaining constant from the time when you put on a hedge and you pull off a hedge. But the degree to which it's variable geographically, I mean, it always does vary, but if that's if that's wider or wilder than usual, I guess I didn't know. That's definitely something to look into. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, it's incredible with this drop in corn prices and bean prices and feed grains across the board, Elaine, when you look at feeder cattle longer term through the fall, I mean, you gotta figure there's gonna be some more strength there, don't you? As I know. As guys try to walk this corn off the market, off the farm? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I, that's something I was looking at today, um, is how, you know, they say a rising tide lifts all boats. I figure a falling tide beaches all whales. So, <laughs> so I was taking a look at lots of these feed grain prices and to see, or feed prices, feed in general prices and see how they've changed over the past few months of 
this corn and soybeans falling down. And so uh, corn has been down, let's say, 16, 16% in the past 11 weeks. Dried distiller's grains down 60%. Soybean meal down 18%. Milo, I don't know, I didn't get that one. But feed wheat down 12%. So they're all falling at the same time, at the same rate. So there are definitely opportunities here for, for feeders. And when I talked about, you know, the cash corn price spot bids being less than $3 and saying that was so disheartening. It is disheartening if you're just a grain producer, but if you're someone who needs to go in and buy feed, this is a wonderfully golden opportunity, I think. I mean, it's been an opportunity all the way along, but if we are starting to see traders get into the futures and starting, especially the commercial side of the market, if that's gonna, if they're going to start to get in there and start buying and putting a bottom into these markets, this could be the time not only to lock in prices for 2018, but even to look out potentially 2019, start locking in these gift prices for feeders. Now, Elaine, when you think about, again, cheaper feed grains, when we look at all of the end users that were really pretty banged up from 2008 through 2012, 2013, um, you know, ethanol springs to mind. With this cheap corn, do you anticipate ethanol production to increase and maybe we we can just dodge all the RFS altogether if there's just (laughs) enough demand? Well, I've always thought there's never been in my mind any sort of hard and fast blend wall because, yeah, there's always an opportunity to sell more ethanol someplace, maybe not to U.S. producer or, uh, customers, but somewhere. Um, I am noticing crude oil is down about three bucks today. So, yeah. so yeah, it does seem like as long as we don't spark some sort of global recession, which is always in the back of everybody's minds, as long as the economy keeps rumbling along here globally, we should definitely be able to push more energy into the global customer's gas tank one way or another. Yeah, for sure. Well, Elaine, we definitely appreciate you breaking down the markets for us today. And uh, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Well, you know what, guys? I tell you what, it's exciting to see some green and talk about a movement to the upside on a Market Monday. It's been a long time since we've been able to do that. Yeah, it has. Has it really been that long? When you said that to Elaine at the beginning of the interview, I thought, really, has it been that long? Yeah, eight or nine weeks. Mm, That's crazy. At least on the corn side. I didn't look at beans, but I think they're about the same. Okay. Yeah, I believe you. Well, folks, I tell you what, if you want to follow up, get some more info, maybe you want to listen to those Downer Market Mondays from a few weeks ago, you can do that on our website at agnewsdaily.com. Or, Hannah, if they want to follow us on social media, where should they go? You can head to Twitter or Facebook and just search for Ag News Daily. We're always trying to interact with the public, so get on, see what we're doing. And Mike Delaney, if we have no more news, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. go. 